Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hazen. I am your host. And joining me for today's podcast is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? Oh, I'm 16 days away from being a lot better. <laughs> are we 16 days to election day? Two, oh, a little only over two 16 weeks? days, two hours, 51 minutes and 45 seconds as of I'm saying this, but... When you are hearing this, dear listener, we will be even closer, and I will be closer to freedom, and so will you. So will you. I don't even know what we're going to talk about when this is done. (laughs) Our perfect Sundays. So on today's podcast, we are going to talk about the recent Atlanta Press Club debates that were had in uh, the Purdue Senate seat race, as well as in uh, Georgia's 7th Congressional District and Georgia's 6th Congressional District. I think key to... Uh, these debates, particularly in the Senate one, was how much negativity went back and forth between uh, David Perdue and John Ossoff in those debates. So we're going to break them down and and play some clips for you. Then we're going to also talk through some recent news from the campaign trail, including David Perdue's purposeful mispronunciation of uh, Senator Kamala Harris's name at Trump's rally in Macon on Friday. Uh, We'll also talk about a piece from 538 that describes Georgia as a pure toss-up and and think about what we should do with that Quinnipiac poll that had Biden up seven points in the state. And then to round out today's show, we're going to take a look at some of the other Senate races going on in our region and other states across the South. Lots of interesting stuff going on in the Alabama Senate race in South Carolina. Um, And North Carolina may be one of the most important states, along with Georgia, in terms of Democrats' quest to control the U.S. Senate after the 2020 elections. Kyle, Georgia is always the most important state. It is, in our hearts. A quick plug before we get started. Next week, we're going to talk about the race for the state legislature. So if you, our listeners, have seen ads or mailers or anything else out there that describes the arguments that Democrats and Republicans are making in these races, please send it our way. Send it over to our email address, peachpod.podcast at gmail.com, or find us on Twitter at peachpodga. I, I have one question for you, Kyle, and that is, will we be talking about John Ossoff's radical socialist agenda? Uh, I heard he has one, and I heard it. <laughs> what is it though? Seven, Do we know? eight, nine times during the debate. You know, it was never outlined. It was just determined. To <laughs> it just be... exists. <laughs> we don't know what it is, but it's the he has one. He could have put out an agenda that was just all of David Perdue's ideas, and all David Perdue would say about it is it's a radical socialist agenda. That's right. But we'll we'll get into that. Well, that's actually where we're going to start. So over the last week, the Atlanta Press Club has hosted debates for for some of Georgia's leading races this fall. And let's start with that debate in the Senate race, Luke. I was most struck by the opening gambits from both David Perdue and John Ossoff, where they set the table early that they were going to spend most of the debate talking about negative things about their opponents. Let's start with David Perdue's opening here. This was a response from David Perdue to a question about education standards. Well, Raul, that was a great question. Um, But first, let me thank the Atlanta Press Club and GPB and all the viewers for tonight's event. It's a very special time and a very special event in our representative democracy. My mom and dad were school teachers. They believe the best decisions were made by the local parents, school teacher, principals, and administrators. I believe in school choice. A child's education should not be limited to the economic uh, circumstances of their community. But let me just bracket what we're going to hear tonight just a minute. 
First of all, John Ossoff is desperate. He will say anything to hide his radical socialist agenda. Take a drink. He wants to defund the police. <laughs> he wants open borders, sanctuary cities. He wants the Green New Deal. He wants to cut and, and close military bases in Georgia and to force socialized medicine. He will say anything to hide his radical socialist agenda. That's not only dangerous. Ten seconds. It's dangerous for communities and families in Georgia. Luke, that was David Perdue's opening. John Ossoff sounded a very similar tone or at least signaled a very similar strategy in his opening. Let's listen to Ossoff's response to the first question to him, which was about which was a question about Ossoff having little prior political experience, little prior elected office experience and how he would address the pandemic. Well, politicians like Senator Perdue have failed us, and the choice is very clear for voters in this election. I run a business that investigates organized crime, political corruption, and war crimes all over the world. We've exposed bribery on multiple continents. And Senator David Perdue sells meetings for corporate PAC checks. He sells lavish retreats on the private island where he lives for corporate PAC money. That's the corruption that's destroying our political system. And it's why politicians don't serve the interests of ordinary people. They serve the interests of our donors. Senator Perdue, even in the midst of this pandemic, is pushing a lawsuit to allow insurance companies to deny health coverage to people with pre-existing conditions like asthma and cancer and diabetes because he works for his donors and not for we the people. Luke. Not directly answering the question is basically par for the course in these debates. But Ossoff, in his opening question, the response to which you just heard, was given an opportunity to lay out a positive vision of his own agenda in response to that question. And instead, he drove that directly to a negative message about Senator David Perdue. And then much of their back and forth throughout the entire debate was really was really defined by that same approach. Do you think that that was good strategically for John Ossoff to have that focus in this debate? I do. And the reason why is these debates are very short and in opening statements, you really, or openings, because they really didn't allow them to have opening statements. They sort of just like started asking them questions. Like I think every, every debate should have an opening statement and a closing statement to avoid this exact problem because I've seen so many debates that don't have them. And what ends up happening is they just become opening statements. I mean, even clients I work with infuriate me and make me want to rip out all the little bit of hair I have left <laughs> when they have to, you know, when, when, they're asked their first question. It's a substantive good question like this one was, but they feel obligated to do two things. One of which I feel is completely unnecessary, which is spend 15 to 20 seconds, like thanking everyone. Like, I know it's a nice thing to do and it's just like a way to warm up, but like, please get that shorter, especially with short debates like these and then frame like why they're there and what they're talking about and why they're running against their opponent. And we don't allow open questions to happen, like I, I or sorry, open statements to happen. I don't know what else you expect uh, will happen because they're going to hijack your question. It's going to get lost. Um, so I, you know, I pity the reporter that had that duty to to do that. Um, now that being said, I think it was important both for David Perdue to be fair to him and to John Ossoff to use their first time talking to people to lay out very clearly what they're there to do and why and why they think their opponent should not win. And so I don't really qualm either of them for doing that. Yeah, I mean, 
it it's clear that that's the negative message about the opponent is priority number one for both of them at this time. I don't know. I just there has been because this election is so structured around accountability for the president and for Republicans about their handling of the pandemic. It has been focused on a negative frame from the beginning. And I think that a lot of what has gotten lost during this is what would Democrats do if they take power, understand that they're going to be different than the Republicans on the virus and on the response to the virus. But painting a picture of that for people, I think, has been lost here. And I don't... I don't know. If I was Asaf, I might have tried to find a way to sort of shoehorn both into that response to say, you know, here's the negative things that David Perdue has done, but here's how I will be different. And I think that would have shored up one concern, if you have one about John Ossoff, is he never has held elected office. He never has been elected to anything. He spent time on the Hill as an advisor, but not as a uh, as an elected official. And he's not going into a 435 member house. If he wins this race, he's going into a hundred member Senate and he will be one of only two people that represents Georgia in Washington. Um, you know, taking an opportunity to sort of put people at ease and explain his own vision and what he would do in that moment, I think could have been beneficial to him. You know, I, I agree, but I also push back. Uh, the first thing I'll hit on is the, what you describe is like the negative framing that Ossoff takes on. And this is something I've heard a lot about Biden that I've been wanting to push back on. Yes. Like, are they constantly saying this administration has failed? David Perdue has failed. My Republican opponent has failed. Yeah. And there's a reason why they're, they're saying that, which is to me, or at least what I take away from it. And I really hope this is what, you know, the American people, <laughs> Georgians are taking away when they hear this from someone is I believe this administration has been dishonest to you and to me about how the coronavirus, how dangerous the coronavirus is, how bad this pandemic it, it continues to be, and how we are going to actually get out of this thing. And because of that deep belief I have, I am going to run for office and tell you that I'm going to take this seriously, I'm going to fix this problem, and I'm not going to lie to you about that. And to me, that is a positive agenda that is basically highlighting the fact that if I am elected to this position, or you know, if John Ossoff or Joe Biden is elected to this position, they fully expect to be judged by voters by how they handle the coronavirus, because I don't care what anyone says, we're not gonna be out of this in a year, we're not going to be out of this in two years, even if the, there's a vaccine and the virus is taken care of and you're not afraid of getting sick anymore. Like there's going to be downstream consequences of all the economic, emotional and social turmoil that um, different levels of being sheltered in place or quarantined or, you know, the economy being halfway shut down is going to have. And it's going to take time to get through that. And to me, just about 90 percent of the Democrats running in the country right now are basically running on the platform of. I am going to fix coronavirus and all of its in, you know, downstream consequences. And if you think I do a bad job, you can kick me out after that. But what we can all agree on is that the current incumbents are doing a bad job. And to me, that's plenty. Like I, I, th I think, and this is the, the key thing I think is I would be worried if John Ossoff was like, here is my 20 point plan for how I, a lone U.S. Senator who has never been elected to anything, will single handedly solve coronavirus because that would just be full of shit. Right. Like he's not going to come up with a plan to solve coronavirus. Uh, what I would want someone to do 
since he's running for the job of singer, he should be like, I take this problem seriously and I'm going to listen to smart people and push for this to be uh, something we get a solution to rather than here is my plan that has a you know grand total chance of 0% to get passed because whenever he gets up there, there's going to be some other package that's being worked on. So that, that's the first thing. And then a, a, just a very other short thing. To me, like I don't really care what someone's resume is. There's been great senators who were in Congress or were a mayor or were a governor before they were a senator. And there's been plenty that that was the first job they ever had in politics and have done a good job. And there's been terrible ones with the exact same resume. So in, in my mind, that doesn't mean too much to me. To argue against my own point a little bit, if Ossoff was going to come out and describe his plan for ending the virus, I actually... Th- I don't think it would be this big 20 point thing that's unlikely to ever pass. I actually think when you talk about solutions to the coronavirus and how to reverse and improve upon the Trump administration's response, the answer to that question is actually pretty boring. And Democrats who have described their view of how this response should have been handled say basically two things. Number one, we should have listened to scientists and public health experts in designing the response. And number two, we should have set up national systems for testing and contact tracing. And looking forward to sort of the next step in this process, you need a responsible and equitable strategy for distributing a vaccine that is focused on vulnerable populations and people who are at increased risk of contracting the virus because they're nurses dealing with patients or because they're teachers who need to be in schools in in-person environments. And that's so, so you mean all the things the Trump administration says it's doing. Yeah. And Democrats say and, that that's so a that, failure. See, this is where the problem is, Kyle, and why I, I disagree <laughs> with this emphasis on like explaining it is this is not a problem of rocket science. Like where it's very hard to explain what needs to be done. It is very easy to explain what needs to be done. What is very hard is actually doing it. And so if you're having a conversation where like John Ossoff is saying all the things you just said, David Perdue would say, that is what we are doing. And I mean, that, that is one of the things that I thought talking to an earlier you know, episode topic of when Kamala Harris and Mike Pence were debating, I thought that was a one area where Mike Pence did very well, which was just like pushing Harris on the fact that all the things that they say we need to be doing are things that the Trump administration says we need to be doing, but they are just incredibly terrible at the execution of it. And so what well, I appreciate the fact that Ossoff is just, cutting through the middleman and being like look they're doing a bad job right like it doesn't matter what they think we should be doing they are not doing it well and so they should be judged based off of that and and they should be judged especially based off of the fact that david purdue and trump were downplaying the virus early in its early days and that purdue was very likely uh profiting off of his knowledge of the virus while he was downplaying it and that is what I think is a key difference here is there is no argument about what should be done. It is how well you will actually do those things. And that is, that is the argument in which I feel like Ossoff was trying to have. Yeah. No, just just by saying they're doing a bad job. And I, and I agree in part. I mean, I think if you, if if you you agree in part, that means you're disagreeing in part. (laughs) Well, I know. And I was actually, I began my point. I think you missed this. I began my point by saying I was going to argue against myself a little bit, but I agree that you know, the solutions are sort of relatively boring and 
you kind of go round and round in the circle of if you just lay out that sort of boring responsible agenda, Republicans will say we're already doing that. Um, I, you know, I think that's an important moment, though, for Democratic candidates of any level to sort of turn and address the audience and say, if they say that they're doing these things, why can't you comfortably send your kids to school now? Why can't you comfortably go back to the store without wearing a mask when we're several months into this? I think that's, you know, one direction you could push that conversation to get at accountability. But, you know, I totally take that that, you know, there is a lot of power in sort of the negative response about not only did we have a virus that isn't necessarily the fault of Republicans, but they have mismanaged the response and they have lied to you about it while profiting through their stock trades or whatever. I get that that's, you know, driving it in that negative territory makes a larger point about the character of these people and how their character has shown through in a bad way in the middle of a crisis. And that is why no matter what you think of Republican ideology on any issue, what you think of how they've handled the economy or whatever, they have been abject failures in a crisis and are not deserving of leadership opportunities. You know, I take that that's a, a larger and more important, more important point to make. I also think there is a role for people who are less engaged in our politics you know, this raises a question of who's actually watching these debates, but for people who are less engaged and who may be tuning in now to sort of give each candidate an even shot of winning their vote, if there are any of those voters left in Georgia, I think it could have been useful to speak to those voters and lay out your positive agenda um, and just, you know, at least put out there on the table a description of the ways in which you would be a responsible leader in this crisis. So the negative framing of Ossoff's arguments in this debate was, I think, expected and and kind of proportionate to what we've seen. In my view, David Perdue kind of took it to a whole nother level on his negativity. He, you know, as we mentioned, went at Ossoff over and over again about his radical socialist agenda. But he decided to sort of like add a little icing on the cake. Let's listen to one exchange that highlights uh, David Perdue's strategy in this debate. I think I get to respond to that. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Well, I'm glad John Ossoff brought this up. Um, I'd like him to explain where his money comes from, really, in his uh, business. His One of his largest uh, clients is Al Jazeera, um, the mouthpiece for terrorism. He's actually gotten money for two years from the Chinese Communist government and tried to hide it by not disclosing on a Federal Election Commission report. It's pretty clear he certainly doesn't want to know, uh, people in Georgia, to know that he continues to be supported after 2017 and even just two weeks ago. Ten he seconds. to be supported by the Communist Party of the USA. All right. Thank you Senator, very much. Senator, Wait. the Washington Post uh, has sure called your attack flatly false. The Associated Press has called your attack flatly false. Well, is, that the, rule? is that the rule we have? Don? Moderator, I believe that if he accuses me of uh, those kinds of things, that a rebuttal is appropriate. We were told you get one rebuttal. You you have 30 seconds to I'm rebut it. Do, is there Thank more you, you want to say, Mr. Ossoff? Thank you. Well, he's just accused me of ridiculous things to avoid answering a question about health care. The Washington Post has called Senator Perdue's attacks outrageously false. The Associated Press has called Senator Perdue's attacks flatly false. My business produces investigations of war crimes, organized crime, and political corruption seen around the world by television broadcasters in every region of the world, including Time. the Middle East and Asia. 
Thank you very so, much. Do you deny that you've gotten money from the Chinese government for the last two mm-hmm. years and did not disclose that? You deny we are, that? We're going to have to move on, gentlemen. I'm sorry. We're going to have to move on. Luke, that was all We're not going to have to move on, are we, Kyle? <laughs> <laughs> we're going to languish here. Yeah, we are going to languish here for a minute. Um, that was all layered on top of his sort of standard issue criticism of John Ossoff. Do you think that adding that on served Purdue's purposes or was that a little overdone? So, I mean, I have a lot of questions here, right? Because the the one thing that I'm really sure of is that David Perdue prepared a lot for this debate. And the reason why I know that is that like he like let, let's give him some credit here, right? Like he had a goal in this debate and he articulated it pretty well. We can argue about if it was a smart one or if it was a good one, but like he definitely had a strategy. He definitely understood what the rules were because that was something he brought up a lot in that that debate segment right there I think was the clearest examination of this. And then also it's pretty clear that John Ossoff thought Purdue was going <laughs> to prepare for this debate a lot because in the same way that um, Purdue had this John Ossoff has a radical socialist agenda joke line, you know, if you're making a drinking game to rewatch this debate, uh, it, the other one, you know, one of the other things on your chart would be John Ossoff says to David Purdue to look up from your notes. Um, and so Purdue's prepared, like he has thoughts. And so the strategy that they came up with was one, say that John Ossoff has a radical socialist agenda and two, make him make accusations that seem to prove that. And so he, his two biggest hits on this is trying to make something look bad about his connections with Al Jazeera, which we covered at length in our previous episode, so I won't redo it here. Uh, and this false accusation regarding uh, John Ossoff being endorsed by the Communist Party, and he seemingly to extended that to now he's getting money from the Chinese Communist Party. And I think what we're really seeing here is just how being old can make you screw up some things and like see things from the wrong perspective. Because I don't know if David Perdue is aware, but the Cold War is over. Uh, the the uh, capitalist won. Communists are not really a thing in the way that they were in the 1950s and 60s when David Perdue was growing up as a scrappy young lad. Um, this is just something we're not concerned about as, uh, you know, Americans on the level that we used to be. And we're also all not watching Fox News. And if you watch Fox News all the time, uh, you probably are already voting for David Perdue. You know exactly what it means when he says Al Jazeera is the mouthpiece of terrorism because that's all you've ever heard. And you don't like communism. And I don't know who he's talking to. And this is something I've noticed with a lot of the Republican campaigns this year, where like in 2014, uh, when I was really, you know, like in deep on Purdue's first race, like he was talking to like normal human beings who like had lives beyond watching Fox News and making arguments that would appeal to those people. Whereas this time, I don't know if it's just like he's been, he's no longer the outsider that he, <laughs> he was the first time. Like he's been in the political bubble too long that he like thinks these are the best attacks out there or that they pulled this crap and it like worked because it was just shocking the first time someone heard it. But to me, it's just not very effective because uh, as I've kind of described previously, it's like the 30 second test. If you think for some, about something for only 30 seconds, you're like, wow, you know, <laughs> this is bad. But if you look into it at all, like, 
for longer than 30 seconds, you will see it's full of crap. And I, I just think Purdue's thinking he's going to get away with the 30-second test and that most voters aren't going to look beyond that. Well, I think if you look at that strategy in the debate, as well as the fact that we're going to talk about David Perdue uh, purposefully flubbing Kamala Harris's name at a Donald Trump rally in Macon two and a half weeks before the election. I think you can infer from both of those things that they feel like their path to 50% plus one is to maximize their vote among their base and to let, let no firmly conservative Republican voter even think about not turning out to vote. I mean, those are the only people who watch Fox News enough and are and are sort of dedicated to this line of messaging enough to actually sort of really internalize and be motivated by these things that by these accusations that Purdue is leveling. And I think, you know, I mean, we'll find out if they're right or wrong about that. I mean, it's just clear to me that the bet that they've made, but it strikes me as a vulnerability for them to go all in on this message and not be centering messages that would speak to more moderate, more swing voters. And I thought that there were other points in the debate where I thought Purdue was kind of effective in trying to sort of fight the coronavirus response debate to a draw by saying, here are the things that we've done. And if it weren't for some of these Obama-Biden regulations, we could have been moving faster on a vaccine or faster on our response, trying to sort of cast blame on the Obama-Biden administration for the policies that they left for the Trump administration. Now, factually, that may or may not be true. It seems like you know, we had this virus strike at the beginning of 2020. That's three years into the Trump administration. I don't really think that argument holds a lot. But if you don't know a lot about those policies, and you're somebody who's looking at this race concerned about who will govern well amidst a pandemic, to sort of undermine the positive case for Ossoff in the pandemic, by saying Democrats had all these regulations that screwed us up from the beginning, and we've been fighting that, and we've overcome some of that, and here's the progress we've made. That, to me, has at least a little bit of a broader audience than a, basically a smear campaign about Ossoff and Al Jazeera and the Communist Party. I totally agree. And uh, there's one thing here that I think David Perdue like, deserves a lot of credit for, um, that he... Uh, doesn't very often in like national media get this credit for like he's actually quite good at articulating the trump message in a smart way in a consistent way and he's he's just a lot better messenger than trump ever is and i mean i always thought when he ran in 14 that when trump was running it was a very similar message to what purdue ran on now similarly they don't actually do the things they say they're going to do but they they articulated this message really well. And I agree. I think out of everything Purdue was doing, that was his most effective moment. And I think it's just striking that he thought that that was the throwaway line where saying John Ossoff has a radical socialist agenda was the like main argument he needed to make. And the way that argument was made, but it was just staging it. Um, without any details you know that's the i mean that's the thing that's so amazing uh to me and the other the other place that i thought i'm i'm wondering how useful this is 
is Purdue just saying like the Democratic Party had opportunities to work on these issues before previously and all they had done was make it worse. I don't know how well this argument works. Again, it's a much smarter version than anything Donald Trump would say, but it's basically the argument of, you know why coronavirus is going so badly? It's because of these terrible Democrats. When they were in charge, they set up all this bullshit we're having to get rid of. And if only that had not been done, we would be you know, there'd be no coronavirus in America. Everyone else would be suffering, but just because of the Democrats who are not in charge right now, but they were in charge before. You remember that? That's, it's their fault. Like, it's such a strange argument. And it's, I mean, it's the, it's the argument of an opposition party. And I mean, that is the thing that I really see from Purdue here is that like, he is someone who would be very comfortable in the tradition of Newt Gingrich, not leaking anything, but just saying, look at them, they're doing things wrong. And that, that it's just a lot harder when you're in charge to, to make that work and to make it stick. And I think that's the issue you're seeing with a lot of these folks. So Luke, this debate was not just between John Ossoff and David Purdue. You also had libertarian candidate Shane Hazel as a part of this debate um, one of my favorite clips from the debate is actually Ossoff and Purdue are, are going back and forth about something related to the coronavirus response. And, and the moderator jumps in and she says, we need to give Shane Hazel an opportunity to answer this question. And I was like, do we? Do we really? <laughs> but you, we talked a little bit about this before we started recording. You found Shane Hazel, the libertarian candidate, to be somewhat polished what did you think of of his role in this debate so i'll be like incredibly clear here sorry shane like libertarian ideas are bad and they're stupid and they're especially stupid at a time of crisis uh and but the thing i will give shane hazel a lot of credit for and like a lot of kudos i mean i mean this sincerely i'm not being sarcastic like he is a true libertarian from everything i heard of him you know again i i am judging within the confines of this hour-long debate that I watched. So anything outside of it is completely irrelevant because I will admit this is like the second time I've heard of you, Shang Hazel, if you're out there and listening or, or if you're a fan of him or someone who follows him. Like he seemed to be... Ossoff repeatedly complimented him on his principles. So you can at least take John Ossoff as a validator. Right, so I'm going I'm to trust that John's done his research <laughs> since that is his day job. Um, like he was very consistent. He had very clear principles and he just like didn't care. And he was very articulate of like what the libertarian position would be. And he was very polished and he had, you know, spoken full sentences and answered questions well. And I mean, it's the thing is, this is, this is the thing I've been harping on and is so true in the example of Shane Hazel. It's so true for people like Richard Dean Winfield and, you know, many of the other 8,000 candidates running in the seat currently held by uh, Kelly Loeffler. These are folks who would be incredibly interesting and dynamic county commissioners, state representatives, state senators. If they ever ran for those positions, they would probably be able to win them. And for some reason, People like Winfield and Shang Hazel, because this is actually true for both of them, who ran in congressional primaries in 2018 and lost badly, they thought, oh, I know what I did wrong. I ran for an office that was too small. My ideas didn't get to enough people. If only I ran for a bigger office, I would finally be the person who wins. And it's just like, you're not, you're never going to be that person. Like, if there was ever going to be that person, it was Ross Perot in 92, and he had Buku's of money to do it and he didn't do it so if like if ross perot couldn't do it and his charts like you're not going to do it with your principles and your you know very socialist ideas in the case of you know hazel and winfield um selectively so i just like i wish these people would run 
for lower offices because they actually probably could win because they are much smarter and much more prepared than most people who run for county office. And it would be interesting to see how successful or not they are. And that would be the way you could start building a bigger platform for these ideas if that if you are so inclined. I am not inclined <laughs> for them to be successful. So I'll just keep laughing uh, about it and being you know surprisingly impressed sometimes when someone who's more competent uh, uh, runs with, on these party mantles. But yeah, I, I don't know if it added anything to this debate. I don't really think it did. But the thing I, I, I will say that I think should be mentioned here because we haven't brought this up yet. The reporters did a fantastic job. They asked really good questions. They followed up. I mean, you know, there are some instances with, uh, you know, people interrupting each other or being a little pushy for uh, their rebuttals. But, you know, that's that's what happens in every debate. But just compared to the debates that we've seen on the national level, I always love these debates. I'm a big fan of these debates. I love it when candidates ask each other questions because even if it's not the most substantive thing in the world, it does tell you a lot about the candidate and what their their campaign is about. And so I love these debates and I liked watching this. I thought it was fun and informative. And despite like both Ossoff and Purdue throwing a lot of barbs at each other, like I think they had to answer things that were far more substantive and they actually did like give some real answers on a couple like tricky questions that I think we're all better off for having them have to give those answers. Yeah. And so for listeners, I would encourage all of you to go to the Atlanta Press Club uh, Facebook page or YouTube page to to find these debates in full. They were really well done. And they were particularly well done given that they suddenly had to shift to um, doing these remote debates. One last point on Shane Hazel, and then I want to move on and talk about the 6th and 7th District debates. I found it both abrasive and comical that Shane Hazel was so committed to his libertarian principles that he sat there in the face of questions referring to a historic pandemic and recession and basically laid out his libertarian principles that amounted to, we do nothing. We do nothing about these crises that we are facing. And he actually said all of that with a straight face and in a very smooth voice uh, in the middle of those debates. So my opinion is that ultimately it didn't add a lot. Um, but it was striking to me that that philosophy just has absolutely nothing productive to say about what you do in the middle of a crisis. Let's move on here and, and talk about the the sixth congressional district debate, and, and then we'll do the seventh, because Luke, you kind of teed this up. I thought that this debate, for the most part, was as expected. You had a lot of uh, back and forth over health care a lot of comparing of records between uh, Lucy McBath and Karen Handel. As a reminder to listeners, uh, Karen Handel secured the sixth district seat in a special election where she beat John Ossoff in 2017. She was then subsequently defeated by Lucy McBath in the 2018 midterms. And we have a rematch between the two of them for this seat uh, for the next two year term. So in, in some ways you have sort of two opponents on roughly equal footing here. They have a little bit of voting history, but they're both relatively new um, to competing for this district in elections. Luke, the thing that stood out to me about this debate is looking back at this seat over the last few years, I always assumed that the seventh district would flip before the sixth district. And that if you wanted to win the sixth district, you had to have some appeal 
to moderate to more conservative voters if you wanted to win this district as a Democrat. When you look at the strategy employed by Lucy McBath, you know, you mentioned that when these debates are unique and that they give the candidates an opportunity to ask a question of each other. And that is the one moment where a candidate can drive the discussion of this debate in a way that explains their own strategy. And we'll talk about the seventh, but, you know, Democrats across the country have been campaigning on COVID response and healthcare. That's been sort of the two big themes. Lucy McBath used her question to drive a discussion about abortion, which I found very interesting. Let's listen to this exchange between McBath and Handel. Thank you so much. Ms. Handel, you listed your source of income as coming from GLA, I believe, Georgia Life Alliance, a group which would actually deny choice uh, to women who are victims of rape and incest and also has been found to be pushing dangerous uh, medical procedures on women. Did you list this group by its initials to hide from voters your role with such a radical group? Oh, that is ridiculous, Lucy McBath. The organization goes by GLA here in the state of Georgia. Um, So I don't appreciate the insinuations that you're making. Look, the issue of life, it's no secret I'm pro-life. Yes, I help that organization with business strategy, Um, but that's a really emotional and personal issue for everyone and there's very different opinions. Um, I would submit to the people of the sixth district that the only person with an extreme view on abortion is on this call because Lucy, you have voted multiple times to deny life-saving medical care to a baby born alive. That's It's really disgraceful and it's inhumane. And I would like to think we could all agree that that would be something we could could support. Ms. McMath? Thank you so much. Voters cannot trust you to stand up for a woman's right to choose, Ms. Handel. In Congress, you voted to jail doctors who perform abortions, and you even defended the most extreme abortion ban in the entire country, which would expose women to life in prison or even the death penalty. You tried to hide your payments from this radical organization, and you cannot be trusted to fight for women in our community. And I will continue to pose any ability that you might put forward that would prevent a woman from being able to exercise her right to choose what's best for her body. Luke, I thought that was kind of a clumsy way to step into this, uh, to say that an acronym is a way to hide her, her payments. But it was interesting that she decided to drive this discussion to the issue of abortion. I That might have been the first time you heard that exchange. What did you think of that in the context of the 6th Congressional District? I think This is a unique race because this is not only a rematch from 2018, it is also a clear instance in my mind of a newer incumbent politician running against a challenger who has more political experience than she does, right? Like Karen Handel is not like a new fresh face of the Republican Party. Like she's been around for a really long time. She's been elected in a lot of positions, including in that congressional seat. And so I think that just makes it different than the other races that we've talked about and just around the country. I mean, this is a pretty unique thing, I think, of having someone with as long of a record as Karen Handel and frankly, like as many wins and losses 
um, as she's had, because I mean, she's, she's been very successful at times and very unsuccessful at times. And so I think what this comes back down to is with Karen Handel being known already, there are things people know about her and like about her and probably don't like about her. And I have a feeling that Lucy McBath's campaign is aware that the voters in this district are concerned about these things. And that is why they are harping on it because with the fact that Lucy McBath is not an incumbent anymore and that she has been out of office during the entire coronavirus, I think that makes the John Ossoff-esque, the Joe Biden-esque hits on Trump and uh, Purdue, respectively, like they don't work on her because Karen Handel has not been in Congress. Karen Handel has not been voting for or voting against uh, packages to, you know, help with this issue. And so I think you have to focus on what makes Karen Handel a good or bad fit for this district. And the best way to do that is talking about what she believes on, you know, healthcare issues that are really important to a lot of people. Um, so I, to, to me, like, it seems weird. And I think the weirdness comes from just the fact Karen Handel has been around a long time and she's not an incumbent right now. Two things. One, I am a little surprised at that discussion that Macbeth decided to take that opportunity to drive at the issue of abortion. I do think what Macbeth had in mind in that response was, I'm going to take an opportunity to highlight Karen Handel as someone who is very extreme. Um, you know, Handel got an almost equal hit back at Macbeth on that point, but that's the decision that Macbeth made in that question that she asked. And I guess in some ways that is meant to counteract a message that Handel delivered later in the debate, which is Handel saying, I'm from here. I've been a part of our politics for a long time. You know me. You know that I'm somebody who has tried to solve problems in uh, in Georgia before, and and you should put me back into office because you know me. And I think Macbeth, you know, she's known nationally as an activist on issues of gun violence, but I don't know how well she is known locally. Um, and so I, so I, I think that's some of the thinking that that went into Macbeth's choice in that moment. I will say though, in this, I think taps into Karen Handel's experience. Karen Handel, I thought, among all of the debates that I've watched in this Atlanta Press Club format, I think does an excellent job with the sort of hand-to-hand combat aspect of these debates. She knows her stuff really well. She knows how to sort of drive a discussion in a way to put a hit on her opponent. It, To me, it, it looks very effective. She looks like an effective operator in that moment. It also makes her look like a politician. She's very polished and very skilled in that. And I don't know if that serves her well or, or doesn't serve her well. You know, her record of elections is mixed. She's won some, she's lost some. Uh, but just to give her a little credit, I think she's just very effective in this format and was very effective in it in the in the Zoom call format that everybody had to do. Quickly here on, on the seventh district debate, um, again, if you if you miss these, check out the uh the Facebook pages, the YouTube pages, they're posted in full. Um, the seventh district debate was between Carolyn Bordeaux, who almost won this seat, uh, almost defeated Rob Woodall for reelection in 2018. Rob Woodall is retiring and not running for reelection in this seat. So Carolyn Bordeaux is back to face emergency room physician, uh, Dr. Rich McCormick in this debate. This one, I think, 
falls firmly into the similar races you've seen among frontline Democrats across the country in 2018 and in 2020. A lot of focus on healthcare. Going back to 2018, this race is obviously focused on response to the COVID pandemic. Luke, one thing that stands out to me, though, is that while Lucy McBath sort of made a decision to sort of drive into a divisive issue. Carolyn Bordeaux made a decision in this debate to highlight instances where she has been recognized for her bipartisanship. Let's listen to one clip about how she talks about her tenure as the state's, as the budget director in the state Senate. So I was director of the Georgia Senate Budget Evaluation Office during the Great Recession, the worst fiscal crisis the state has faced since the Great Depression. Georgia's revenues plunged by 20%. I was director, and what I could do was help guide the legislature through the process by presenting options. And my priority was to protect core services while creating a platform for Georgia to get up back on its feet after the crisis had passed. Uh, The budgets passed by broad and bipartisan majorities. And at the end of my time there, I was honored with a special resolution for significant service to the state of Georgia. So while there are things here and there, yes, obviously that could be changed. At the same time, these were broad and bipartisan budgets that got Georgia back on its feet. Luke, I have actually a complaint about this answer. Um, The history to me shows, yes, they were bipartisan budgets, but they were terrible budgets that cut education funding um, that did not set up Georgia to be successful and invest in the things that people need. That is obviously my own complaint. But I think what you learn out of that is that Bordeaux could have taken that opportunity to lay out her progressive vision by describing how those budgets were bad and saying, well, I wasn't really responsible for them. I was a staffer. And here's what I would have done differently, having had a front seat for this process. And instead, she took that opportunity to say, these were bipartisan budgets, and I got recognized in a bipartisan fashion for my leadership in this office. And to me, that signals that she thinks playing up bipartisanship and trying to appeal to Republican voters is an important thing for her to be doing in this race. What do you think of that in the context of the 7th District? I mean, I think that is what Democrats have been doing running for office in the state for a long time. And, you know, I hate to break this to you, Kyle, but like, you know, every individual lawmaker is not you know responsible for the entirety of every budget and every staffer is not, you know, not in charge of making the whole budget. And yet they will always campaign on it. Right. And I will campaign against people who are in office, blaming them for the entire budget if they vote for it or had a role in, in crafting it. And so, I mean, I'm not surprised that's how Bordeaux is interpreting it because that's just standard operating procedure. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that because I think it, does it does say a lot um about uh what people's priorities are and i agree with you these budgets weren't great um but there were good things in them and i think highlighting those things that you thought were good is is important to do and i i, I just to drill I'm skeptical go ahead. just to drill in though my what i'm pulling out of this is that this district is a lot more competitive a lot more 50 50 and a district that Bordeaux might lose, even in a favorable political environment, than I would have anticipated. If you look at the 538 average, yeah. it actually gives McCormick a slight, he is slightly favored in this race. 
do you think that that's right? Because you know, we've talked before about how we we thought the seventh district was a little more democratic leaning than the sixth, but I don't I I keep getting that wrong. I guess. <laughs> so I don't think you're getting it wrong. And and to mention our you know our uh, friends from five thirty eight, I I hope you're out there listening. Um, they have they they talk about this, and other people have talked about it. And I think it's a really key concept for the Georgia electorate to be thinking about is the Georgia electorate is very inelastic. And what that means is that like most of the people who are Republicans vote for Republican all, all the time. Most of the Democrats vote for Democrats. There's a small population of people who actually genuinely swing between parties. And it's really a turnout game, right? Like this is why the Republicans fight so hard to make it hard to vote in the state of Georgia. It's not because they are afraid of a bunch of people, Republicans becoming more democratic. They are afraid of a lot of people who don't usually vote in elections voting in this election. And so I I think what is happening here, let's just assume that Bordeaux is not just like going by her gut and they have data and they've looked at this district because I have not looked at this district in a deep, deep level in a while. I, I think what may be happening there is they are concerned that the turnout numbers, as high as they are statewide, aren't going to get to where they need to get to for her race and her district, and that they have to pick up all the crossover votes that they can. Or they could just be looking at it from another perspective, which would be like, maybe they think they've got all the turnout in the bank, and they're trying to expand the field here. Um, It's hard to tell, because... While these two congressional seats and the Senate race have been polled, you know, at a decent clip, they're, you know, we don't have polls every day, <laughs> you know, we don't have polls every week. And so without seeing that information and without really going into the crosstabs, what I see is that she's consistently down, as you mentioned. And I think she's suffering somewhat from what um, Macbeth is actually advantaged by and what Ossoff is advantaged by is that she's not running against an incumbent this year because I think this is a like incumbency is usually a good thing but in this year I think incumbency is a bad thing like I think Ossoff has a great chance probably the best chance of any Democrat in a long time of winning that Senate seat but if Purdue had retired this year and it was you know random Joe Blow new Republican who you know maybe been in the state house for a while or uh, was a Rich McCormick who just like popped out of nowhere, or for that matter, David Perdue. Um, like I think Ossoff would be having a much harder time right now. And so I think just the fact that Rich McCormick cannot really be blamed for anything that's happened because he hasn't been in DC, um, that's hurting her here. And that line of attack that uh, many challenger Democrats are benefiting from is just not available for her. So let's move on from the debates here. And, and Luke, you kind of previewed this. We've taken a lot of looks at 538 this week, and and they had an interesting piece out taking a statewide look at Georgia um, and noting that Georgia is only the third state in their model to have switched sides in the last few months, to have moved from one party to another. Um, And today, as we speak, the 538 model uh, currently calls the presidential race at an even 50-50 split. Um, Luke, this follows a poll from last week that from Quinnipiac that showed that Joe Biden was actually leading the presidential race in Georgia by seven. It showed large leads for both Raphael Warnock in the uh, 
in that Senate race, along with John Ossoff leading Purdue in the Purdue race. What do you make of that poll? And as we, you know, come down to the last two weeks here, what are your overall thoughts on the possibility that Georgia could actually flip blue this time? It's been close. It's been getting closer and closer and closer. But for Democrats, their interest is their interest is in actually flipping it. Is that possible this time? I I think it is. Now, is that Quinnipiac poll right? I mean, I I would love that to be the case. It would make my life a lot easier. I would be a lot less stressed out if someone could just go ahead and tell me if we're going to win or not. But that's not going to happen. So, I I think what it is, and this is something we talked about a little bit before we started recording is ever since Trump won and John Ossoff ran the first time, I feel like there's been actual real national attention on Georgia as a potential purple state, right? Like, I said it uh, as loud as I possibly could, as long as I possibly could, until I was purple in the face that Georgia was a flippable state and that people should invest money into it. But really, until Ossoff ran, nobody even considered it. And then when Abrams ran and she deserves a lot of credit here. I think they both do. I think, but she obviously deserves way more probably. Um, when she start, when she ran and built the campaign she built and raised the money she did and got as close as she did and probably would have won if there wasn't for all the shenanigans and skullduggery of Kemp and his role as Secretary of State, like either way, taking that, you know, taking that for granted, believing it or not, like she got really, really close. And I think that just, those two races make a lot of people wake up to the fact that hey, if you invest in Georgia, you might be able to get something out of it. And that just doesn't happen overnight, right? Like you're not going to go from not winging a state since 1992, the year I was born, to winging it every time or even winging it once. It's going to take time. And so the thing I think is true for the first time, really probably since 96, is that Georgia is a winnable state for the presidential candidate. And that's a big deal. Uh, I mean, because even though Obama put some money in the state in 08, they ain't concessed in 12 and they were really late in 08. And this time, Biden has, like, you know, when the Biden, I, I don't know, I don't talk to them, but like, I imagine the Biden team had like a big map of the United States either on their computers or on a wall. And Georgia was always one. They're like, yeah, we're probably going to put money there. Um, and they have been putting more and more in there as it's gone on and Ossoff has run a real race and Raphael Warnock is running a real race. And I think we're seeing some dividends from that. So are we definitely going to win? Absolutely not. But is it possible? Yeah, I really, really think it is. And I think Biden has the easiest time of that because I could see a scenario where Biden wins, Ossoff goes to a runoff and Warnock and Loeffler go to a, a runoff and yeah, that will be a, a crazy situation. But I think that is, if Democrats are having a good night, I think that's the most likely one, just because our good friend Shane Hazel is probably going to pick off enough votes to keep someone from getting over 50%. But I mean, there's 16 days left, and this campaign has already had completely unbelievable 10-day periods. It's had like four or five of them. Um, and so I just don't, I don't think 2020 is done with us yet, <laughs> you know, and I don't know which direction it's going to go in. Maybe it's a bad one. Like, you know, maybe next week we'll be recording. And it's like, wow, Trump is up by 20 in Georgia. How'd that happen? Um, I, I think that's unlikely, but either way, I, I think 
there's lots of room for either candidate to, you know, for Biden to grow his margin or to Trump to reclaim his position in the state. I know we're nearly at an hour, but I'm very glad that we don't end this uh, show today on 2020 is not done with us. (laughs) (laughs) Um, A couple more things here before we go. So David Perdue seems to have made a mistake on the campaign trail that really lit up Twitter this weekend. He spoke at a rally with President Trump in Macon on Friday evening and purposefully mispronounced the name of Kamala Harris, uh, Biden's running mate and California senator, somebody that Purdue has served with in the Senate since 2017. Um, And this drew a lot of really sharp pushback on Twitter, and it became a really quick fundraising magnet for the Ossoff campaign, which announced that they raised a million dollars over the weekend uh, just following Purdue's remarks. Purdue's team, in what was, I think, a symbol that they actually recognized that they might have made a mistake here, did try to walk back the statement a little bit. He His spokesperson said that they didn't mean anything by it. And then pivoted well, be fair to, to Purdue's team. Uh, it's really only him that made a mistake. Yeah. Um, well, and then they they quickly pivoted to their favorite messaging tool, saying that they were making an argument against the radical socialist agenda. I don't know how mispronouncing Kamala Harris's name fits into that argument, but that's what they said. And, and just to be clear, because we haven't like played this clip, like I mispronounce shit all the time. And this was not like a he was talking fast and it was hot because I'm sure it was. And he accidentally mispronounced it because I flub stuff all the time. And I think people should like cut people a break when they do that, um, both for selfish reasons, but also just like, come on, politicians are talking all the time. Like this was very purposeful. He was mocking her, like yeah, openly like, mocking unquestionably her. Mocking really. her. So I just want to be clear that we're not just like raking Purdue over the coals for an honest mistake. Yeah. Um, Luke, I always ask this question when things blow up on Twitter does this matter in the real world? What do you think the the stakes are that are sort of like substantive and meaningful here 16 days before the election? I think it's meaningful because John Ossoff raised a million dollars off of it. <laughs> like yeah. if I give, have my opponent say something and I raise a million dollars off of it, that makes me think it matters. <laughs> um, now, like, does it sway any votes? Maybe. Because, uh, I mean, here's the thing, right? Like if there is a, like when the history books are written 50 years from now, someone was going to like write like a one sentence explanation of like, which side did you not want to be on in 2020? I think like you don't want to look like a dumb racist. Like, I think that's going to be the consensus of the history books when they're writing the history of all the electoral races uh, 50 years from now. And what Purdue opened himself up to really honestly for the first time unambiguously, because there's pretty, you know, there's lots of times you could argue it, but like this time, like if very real example, four years ago when the, you know, like when the VP candidate's name was Tim, like he would not have gone up there and like made fun of Tim Kaine's name because he's just a boring white dude. Like there's there's obviously a racial and gender-based thing that he is doing here that I I don't want to get into it beyond just saying that like it's obvious that he is he's doing something here. It's pretty that is very offensive though. on purpose and is trying to galvanize people that he would not be doing if it was a white dude and he's probably doing it because he's you know a minority 
woman. Like that is why he is making this argument and or you know making these these comments. Um, and so I think it will matter because the place where Republicans are bleeding so hard right now are with suburbanites with well-educated people with people who just like do not like these appeals like they don't like them like maybe subconsciously they work on people um but i think when it becomes conscious where it goes from dog whistle to bullhorn and i would argue this is a clear example of bullhorn then that just turns people off and it's like you combine that with the, you know, we've made fun of it the whole episode. We've probably said it more than Purdue did. You are welcome. Send your checks to Luke Boggs. <laughs> you know, John Ossoff has a radical socialist agenda. You combine like that inflammatory comment with this other one. And I think it like starts to strain the credibility of like, can I even trust that this is true? And I, I mean, I think that's, that's what Purdue is risking here is this, this is making that argument harder for for the voters he needs to believe. Well, and to the extent that Purdue wants to separate himself from the president, this is an opportunity for John Ossoff to say he's no different than the president. And this is the one place where Purdue probably could credibly separate himself and for moderate voters distinguish himself from the president as not stooping to President Trump's level on these issues. But he he threw that out the window with with his audio. Right. And, you know, where I gave Purdue credit earlier in the episode of like being a smarter Trump, this is definitely an example of him breaking from that. And I think probably revealing who he really is. So let's close today uh, with taking a quick look at other Senate races around our region and how important they will be in Democrats' quest to retake the U.S. Senate in 2021. Democrats find themselves, I think, in a pretty fortunate position of having multiple paths to winning control of the U.S. Senate. And several Southern states will play a pivotal role in, in whether or not they ultimately win control, particularly, in my view, Alabama and North Carolina. Um, just to, to quickly set the playing field here for folks, in, in Alabama, you have Democrat Doug Jones running for re-election against former Auburn coach Tommy Tupperville. In North Carolina, Democrats are trying to flip that seat away from Republican Tom Tillis. Democrat Cal Cunningham is trying to do that. In South Carolina, you have Lindsey Graham fighting for his re-election against the former chairman of the state Democratic Party, Jamie Harrison, who's raised buckets and buckets of money. Those, I think, are, are the more interesting races in the South. And then less interesting, but maybe relevant in a Democratic tsunami, you have races in Kentucky where Democrats are trying to unseat Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Texas, where they're trying to unseat John Cornyn, and Mississippi is a repeat of a special election. Republican incumbent Cindy Hyde-Smith is being challenged again by Mike Espy. Luke, in my view, the two most significant races uh, among this group of Southern states, which I I think is, is a, it's important to note here, the progress that Democrats have made, that there are several Senate races in the South on top of Georgia that are relevant in the national context. Um, but I think the most relevant here is Alabama's where Doug Jones has a, a tough hill to climb for reelection. But if he is able to maintain that seat for Democrats, it really simplifies Democrats' path to gaining control of the U.S. Senate. And then in North Carolina, that is the probably the most prime flippable seat for Democrats. Democrats have won statewide in North Carolina. They have a Democratic governor in Roy Cooper. And that rate 
and that state most recently went to Democrats in the presidential race in 2008 when Barack Obama won it. Across this map of of suddenly relevant Senate races in the South, what do you what are your thoughts on on these races? I am yet again going <clears throat> to turn to 2014, which feels like a million years ago, even though it's just six. Like that year, that was when John Barrow lost to, you know, for those of you who have never listened to the show and decided, hey, that Peach logo looks fun. Um, John, John Barrow was a longtime congressman from Georgia, the one of the last white Democrats in the South. I think at the time he lost, he was the last white Democrat in the South um, elected to federal office. Um, and so, like, it looked pretty bad for Democrats that year. Like, pr- pretty much we – and it wasn't just Barrow. Like, we lost – um, Mark Pryor in Arkansas, uh, Kay Hagan in North Carolina was that year, I think. I think um, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. Um, every, every Democrat in the South lost that year, basically. Um, I'm probably forgetting some, there's probably more, um, besides those. And to be honest, there did not really seem to be a good path for any of them to come back ever. And I was very despondent. And, uh, what I'm, I'm really happy to see is like even if we don't win any of these, though. To be honest, I really do think Cal Cunningham, despite his sexting, is going to win in North Carolina. I mean, they've polled before, after, and I mean during, honestly, and like no one cares. Um, and you know, I, I just think at this point, like Tom Tillis has just disqualified himself on a level. It's like I don't really care what Cal Cunningham does in his personal life. He's going to take COVID seriously, and that's enough for me. Well, to um, to pause on that briefly, that. I did think was a potentially damaging thing for Cal Cunningham. He's like a, a a veteran and sort of fits the the profile of maybe somebody who's like uniquely well positioned to win a Senate race in the South as a Democrat. And and that I think undermines an important part of his appeal. It happened the same week that it was announced that Tom Tillis got COVID. So, yeah, I mean, maybe those things cancel themselves <laughs> out. And, and don't get me wrong, like if you said Luke, this happened. Like I would, I would think that's really bad and I would expect it to hurt him, but it just doesn't seem like it has. I mean, we'll find out in 16 days if it did or not. Um, but like the thing I'm happier about is just the fact that like, these are well-funded races with excellent candidates that have a really good chance of winning. I mean, I wouldn't say that they are favored to win in all these cases. In most of the cases, it's the opposite. They are <laughs> expected to lose. Like the thing I know that's going to happen is that, there's going to be some state house seats that flip because of this. There will be some state Senate seats that flip. There will be some county commission seats. There will be some uh, con- in congressional seats potentially that like solely flip because of you know the great work that these other candidates are doing, and that will have good down ballot effects. Yeah, I think most relevant in that uh, question of down ballot impacts is in South Carolina, where Jamie Harrison raised fifty eight million dollars which was more than $30 million more in a quarter than John Ossoff raised in a much bigger state and in a much closer election. Jamie Harrison has $58 million to spend in South Carolina, which how do you even spend that much money in South Carolina? But if he uses that money well to invest in down ballot candidates and build out party infrastructure, there's definitely an opportunity there that Democrats in South Carolina have not had, you know, since the Democrats of South Carolina were what the Republicans are today. Yeah. I mean, the most striking thing to me is the fact that he's out. Like, it's not just with um, Jamie Harrison, like Democrats have outraised the Republican incumbents 
pretty much everywhere across the board. I mean, Ossoff significantly outraised Purdue, which is surprising to me since Purdue, like traditionally, is a good fundraiser and also has connections with lots of people with lots of money. And he also has lots of money. So to me, I I think that is that is interesting. I do wonder how much of this is just being blunted by Republicans calling up one big donor and say, hey, write a hundred million dollar check. OK, cool. Don't have to worry about that anymore. And then, you know, their their campaigns just funding the the bare minimum things that a campaign has to pay for. Um, I do wonder about that. But uh, either way, I mean, the discrepancy is is so big that I, I think it doesn't matter. And I, I do think it's going to have an effect. And if nothing else, I think the incremental progress that we're making in the South and the seats that we inevitably will pick up in all these states, I think they that will truly matter and hopefully encourage future investment in all these states, but especially Georgia. Well, and it demonstrates that one path to building capacity in some of these states that they might not have been able to win before is this small donor operation that can direct money around the country. You know, Jamie Harrison didn't raise $58 million because he is some uniquely gifted candidate in South Carolina. It's because of how reviled Lindsey Graham is. And I don't know exactly what precipitated all of that money to come in, but outside groups you know, must have capitalized on something that Lindsey Graham said or did. I I presume in the context of the Supreme Court thing, maybe it's the well. No, so, to so my just to, to help here because I've kind of followed Jamie Harrison for a while. Like I would actually argue Jamie Harrison is a unique candidate. Like he is really really good at like telling stories, which I always pay attention to candidates that can do that. I mean, he I like I caught wind of him like probably a year ago or so uh just telling a story about like driving out to um a constituent's house who just like have this story i'm pretty i'm pretty sure it's jamie harrison so i hope i'm not uh you know flubbing the details here but just like this great story about a constituent who like every senator since reagan who like told him someone's gonna pave the road to his house and no one ever done it yet so um i believe that's him and so i think i think there is that element and i think lindsey graham has done him a lot of favors and said a lot of things that helped Jamie Harrison raise money, but like he's been raising a good amount of money off of things he said and things that Lindsey Graham has said for quite a while. And I think that does actually come down to unique things about Harrison, but I think even more importantly, the unique nature of like the matchup between Harrison and Graham, because at least in the little bit I have watched this race, and I haven't watched it like a hawk, but the parts of it I have seen, the thing that I think Harrison is doing really well is he's campaigning on the things that Lindsey Graham basically like says he's campaigning on of just being like a independent voice for um you know South Carolina that like you can trust me to like be mavericky I guess as a way to to, to frame it quickly without having to get into too much detail and it's just like Graham has become such a BS master and such a like just completely demolished his unique brand i'd argue he had previous you know it's hard to remember you know because 2016 has just engulfed our entire lives and our entire memories but like there was a time where like lindsey graham was like going to the obama administration and saying let's come up with a climate plan let's come up with an immigration plan like he was a maverick and you know not on the level of john mccain but like he was like doing things like that 
and that's just so anathema to. But it was Graham McCain and like John Kerry that were negotiating those things, right? And, and so, like he and he was like not an asshole. Like he was a very productive senator who was like helpful on these issues. Um, and so, like Harrison has very effectively, I think, re like took it to like just grabbed that mantle away from Lindsey Graham and basically say, if you like what Lindsey Graham did back in the day, like I will do those things and not betray you as he has. And I, I really think that is part of the reason he's doing well. Cause the, the last thing I'll say on Harrison is just like, he's out, like he has done things. He has made arguments that are effective enough that while Trump is polling ahead in the state, Graham is polling behind. And usually it's the exact opposite. Usually the local politician will poll better than the president, you know, uh, at least at least marginally so, right? Even if it's just a couple hundred thousand votes or something or you know 50,000 votes. And he's done the exact opposite. That is very hard to do, and I think Harrison deserves some credit for that. Cuz that hasn't happened to Mitch McConnell. I think that's the the really big thing to say here. Is like Mitch is doing fine whereas you know Graham is not. I want to close here in in sort of moment of zen fashion. Um and, and coming back to Alabama, this doesn't necessarily do the Doug Jones campaign justice. And, and we'll put a link in show notes to a expert. <laughs> I disagree. Of, I think it does him great justice, but <laughs> well, I digress. The, the thing I, do, I don't think it does him justice on is one of the things I really like about Doug Jones is he leans into a message of racial healing in the state of Alabama, which you would think maybe Democrats you know, maybe wouldn't want to discuss that issue. Um, but Doug Jones is unique in that his career is is exemplified by uh, focus on that issue. He prosecuted two members of the KKK who perpetrated the Birmingham church bombings and during the civil rights era. There's a, a great episode of Crooked Media's Campaign Experts React that talks about Doug Jones add on this subject that we'll link to that I, I find really compelling. It's one of the things I really like about Doug Jones. But here's another thing I really like about Doug Jones and his campaign. And that is this message that he runs against former Auburn football coach Tommy Tupperville, who is his opponent in this race. It's not just that he's a quitter, it's how he quits. Tommy Tuberville, after telling his players the only way he would leave his team at Ole Miss would be in a pine box, Tommy Tuberville quit the next week. He quit on his players at Auburn, but still collected a $5 million buyout and $250,000 no-show job before moving on to Texas Tech. He quit on his players at Texas Tech, too, even walking out of a dinner with a recruit to take the job at Cincinnati. Then in his last coaching job, Tommy Tuberville quit on his players again. And as he slinked away to booze, he told Cincinnati students to go to hell. After moving to Alabama just 18 months ago, he wants you to trust him as your United States Senator? It's a six-year term. Fear the thumb, remember the quitter. I'm Senator Doug Jones, and I approve this message because I'll never quit on the people of Alabama. Honestly, Doug Jones deserves to win this race just for that ag alone. The SEC is football is like the most important thing in the South, and the fact that like this, like. If nothing else, I, I he I, I just would wish that this ag would be successful just just to prove that like you can't screw with SEC football or you will be punished in the South. <laughs> and I, you you would have thought yeah I mean Doug Jones, Roy Moore is a terrible person, 
and Doug Jones got very lucky to be running against Roy Moore to actually secure this seat at all in 2017. And you'd, you'd have kind of thought, oh, that could never happen again um, for him to to be able to make such a stark character claim about his opponent. This is completely different, but this is something that may be equally as divisive in the state of Alabama to be able to go after Tommy Tupperville for how he leaves his head coaching jobs. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing. Great. Doug Jones has, has really gotten lucky on who he's run against, uh, for sure. Um, yeah, and I, I, I you know, I, I agree. I like, I like Doug Jones a lot. I have a lot of good things to say about him. I think he, I mean, he's just done an admirable job of running or, or really being the United States Senator from Alabama and, like, not compromising his values in any real way that I've noticed. And like that's not easy. Like the political pressure on him to to do that is enormous. And the fact that he hasn't done it, um, I think is is really admirable. And so I know we're having a very uh, needed laugh on, about this ad, but I, I really really wish he would pull it out because I, I think he deserves it for sure. He'll make a great attorney general if he doesn't win. But it, I True. I uh, I hope that he wins merely because it will. Make the race for the Senate much simpler for Democrats. That too. That too. But, you know, the thing I think it's interesting is, according to 538, um, Doug Jones has just about as much chance of holding on as Ossoff does as winging. And so I, I think that is interesting in itself to think about. So we've gone long today. Thanks so much to everybody who is still listening for staying with us. We're going to go ahead and leave it there today. But there's going to be a lot of interesting races, a lot of interesting results to come in on election night. And for the first time in a long time, so many of them are going to be in the South, uh, a region that is changing. And and that's an exciting development for us, I think. Um, but we are going to leave it there. So we will talk to y'all again soon. Luke, thank you as always for joining. Uh, happy to be here. All right, y'all. We'll talk to you later. Bye. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.